Hello and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. We are diving into the rich and life-giving tradition of Advent this Christmas season. And the word Advent, used to describe the 28 days that lead up to Christmas, stems from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming. We want to spend this time intentionally slowing down, remembering Jesus' first coming, and growing our expectation for His second. This week, Pastor Tim is continuing our series, Advent He Has Come, with a talk on faith. His name says it all. His name is Jesus because He came to save us from our sins. We hope that this talk will encourage and inspire you as you grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. Uh, Christmas is such a wonderful time of year. I don't know if you're like I am, but I get kind of nostalgic. And uh, it starts with seeing like the Christmas tree and the lights on the houses and other decorations, nativity scenes and all of that. It kind of stirs something up within me. And I love, uh, I love desserts during this time of year. I think most of the time I kind of ignore desserts or I don't eat a lot of them. But at Christmas, you just have to. I especially like those little pecan, I don't know what they are. They're not tarts. They're like little pecan pies. They're just really delicious. Or those little nut rolls, whatever. But I absolutely love it. I love the Christmas dinners, and it's always more than one. You know, people love to have Christmas dinners. And I love the programs, the pageants, the concerts, and, and of course, opening the presents and seeing Christmas carols, and all of it kind of comes together. It, this Christmas or Christmas is a kind of a big deal, if you think about it. I mean, even our society that is secular puts an awful lot of emphasis on Christmas. And something obviously happened 2,000 years ago that changed everything. In fact, it changed the way we designate dates. You know, now in our culture, in many cultures, they talk about B.C. being before Christ and then A.D., which A.D. doesn't mean after the death of Christ. It refers to the Latin word anno domini, or those two words that mean in, in the day or the time of Christ, whatever the day of the Lord in the period of time in which he came. But everything is dated to that. And so if something now happened before Christ was born, you know, then it's B.C. And if it comes after that, now I know we've changed the designation. These days people call it B.C.E. It doesn't stand for before Christ anymore. It's before the common era. Somehow this amazing event has become common. But the fact that you change the way it's designated, instead of saying the year of our Lord anymore and you call it this, it still centers around a major change that took place about 2,000 years ago that changed literally everything. And Jesus did. He changed everything. Everything about his life, his death, his resurrection, ministry, everything about him changed everything. His birth, of course, was miraculous. No child had ever been born the way he was. His life was extraordinary. No one had really lived a life like he had in many, many different ways. I mean, just thinking about the miracles and other things, the teaching and everything else. His death, of course, was unforgettable, if not unforgivable. <clears throat> and his resurrection was unprecedented. It had never happened before where someone had been raised from the dead with a glorified body. You know, people had been raised from the dead before, but none had received a glorified body like Jesus had when he rose from the dead. Now, I love the fact that the world pauses for several weeks to just focus on, on the birth of this Savior. 
And they are not only invested from a religious perspective, but obviously even from a financial perspective. An awful lot of money is spent on this thing called Christmas. I was looking online. I came across a website. It's called Consumer Decisions, and they said that in 2018, people spent on Christmas presents 600 billion dollars. That's B as in boy. 600 billion dollars on presents. Another website called Fortune. Lee, it's a play off the word "fortunately," but it's "fortunately." Indicated that same year, 2018, over a trillion dollars was spent during that time period. What we call the Christmas time period here—it's amazing. You see, even our secular world—if they want to get rid of Christmas, they're too greedy to do so. And I don't mind that because it forces the world to stop and to celebrate this event. It gives us an opportunity to talk about this event. And as Christians, of course, we celebrate it for different reasons. We know the Christ of Christmas, and we understand the significance of it. And we realize, without Jesus Christ, we could not have eternal life. It's so significant to us. I would go so far as to say that if it weren't for Christ, all life itself would be both meaningless and hopeless. That might seem kind of extreme, but I think it's true. If it weren't for Jesus Christ, all of life would be hopeless and meaningless. But Jesus Christ, as our Creator, has given us meaning. His death and resurrection has given us hope. It makes all the difference in the world. Now, today we're continuing our series called Advent. He has come, and、um, those of you that are from a background that celebrated the Advent, usually it's four Sundays leading up to Christmas, and and during that time, the world focuses on on Jesus. The word Advent means、uh, coming or arrival. It's a Latin word, or the Latin form of it means to arrive or to come. And the Advent season, those four weeks, focus on both the first coming of Jesus when he came as a baby to die on a cross, and the second coming when he went to a cross for, or when he's going to come back again to rule as king.、Uh, and usually, Advent will focus the first two weeks of Advent on Jesus is coming back. But then, as you get closer to Christmas itself, the focus tends to be on his birth. And then most traditions will have four subjects that they speak about during those four Sundays, and we put together a devotional, which I hope you got a copy of that. But it, it follows these four subjects. The first subject Josh talked about last week was hope. Through Jesus Christ, we have hope. This week's subject is faith. I want to make a case for the fact that Jesus Christ is really worthy of the faith in which that we place in Him. And then we talk about joy. And then we talk about peace, and then the Christmas. I want to focus on Jesus being the light of the world, because part of the Advent celebration has to do with light. But today, I want to talk about why we put our trust in Jesus. What was so unique about Him that He qualifies to be the object of our complete faith and trust? Now, if you've come, been coming around here for a little length of time at all, you know that I often make this statement. Your faith is only as good as the object in which it's placed.、Uh, you can have all the faith in the world, but if you place the faith in an object that's not reliable, then then your faith is is going to let you down. It's not worth anything. And the example I usually give is a chair. I almost demonstrated here, and I thought no. But you know, have you ever sat in a chair and it, you just you, you've had all the faith in the world that it was going to hold you, but then you sat in it and it collapsed? I've had that happen to me. Usually, I caught myself before I went all the way to the ground. The faith is misplaced. 
Any amount of standing there saying, that church, their chair, I know it looks broken and everything, but it's going to hold me, it's going to hold me, it's going to hold me, now let me go. No, it, it, your faith is only as good as the object in which it's placed. So what justifies us putting our faith completely in Christ? What was so unique about him? And I'm going to note four things here today. But we're going to focus on the story or one of the Christmas stories from the gospel writer Luke. Now, Luke was a medical doctor. He accompanied the Apostle Paul on journeys. And he's the one that authored both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And he did a lot of research for this and inspired by the Holy Spirit put together this account. I believe he specifically talked to Mary, the mother of Jesus, about these events. But let's begin to read the story of how the angel Gabriel approached Mary. And as I'm reading, consider some of the descriptive words of this baby that's going to be born to her. We're going to begin in verse 26. We read, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin, engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. A number of things you can pull from this about the identity of this Jesus, what was true about him. But first, let's look at Mary's response to this announcement, continuing in verse 34. We read, Mary asked the angel, how can this be, since I have not been intimate with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's slave, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word, then the angel left her. Now, I love the fact that this angel gave Mary a sign, some evidence that this was going to happen. Because I suspect that immediately after the angel left, Mary would have said, is that really going to happen? Or she would have questioned things. But, but God gave Mary a sign through Gabriel, and it had to do with a relative of Mary's. Mary had an elderly relative, a woman named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth had been unable to have children her whole life. And now when we find Elizabeth in the Gospel of Luke, she's beyond the age of being able to have kids. She's already gone through menopause. The chance of her being pregnant is zero from a human perspective. And I think Mary was hearing this for the first time. She didn't know. Elizabeth lived some distance away. I don't think she even heard about it. But an angel says this Elizabeth, the one who was called childless in her old age, is pregnant. And if you keep reading in Luke, you'll see that she actually went to Elizabeth's house to check it out for herself. Not because she doubted, but it was a miraculous thing. It was a wonderful thing. And if this could happen to Elizabeth, it meant that it could happen to her as well. Now, the question we're addressing here today is based on this description that Gabriel gave, 
why do we put our faith in Christ? Or what did he say that one is unique about Christ, but then worthy of our trust? And we're going to mention four things here. First of all, his identity, that he was and is the Son of God. No one else fits that description. Jesus was and is the Son of God and God the Son, the second member of the Trinity. Let's read verses 31 to 33 again, where Gabriel let Mary know what was going to happen. Now listen, you'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. It's that phrase, Son of the Most High. Now even a casual reading of this, you'd have to conclude... This child is, is unlike anyone that's ever been born. There's no one that's ever been born that would fit the descriptions that are used of this person, someone who's going to reign forever and everything else. But this son of the Most High is the most striking description about it, the son of the Most High. Mary would have recognized that this, was, this is one of the holiest names for God in the Bible. And, and then it's a reference to the God that led the people of Israel out of Egypt, the God that performed amazing miracles, the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. He led them through the wilderness, provided manna from heaven and water from a rock. He led them across the Jordan River. He caused it to part as well, and he gave the promised land to them where this nation of Israel defeated all these stronger enemies all around them. God had been involved with the nation of Israel all this time, and everybody knew about the Lord God of Israel. Holy, holy, holy is his name. But the description that's used of this child is that he's going to be called that God's son. He's going to be the son of the Most High God. And we can't miss the significance of this. J.A. Martin writes about this. Mary could not have missed the significance of that terminology. The fact that her baby was called the Son of the Most High pointed to his equality with Yahweh. That's the Hebrew name for God in the Old Testament. She couldn't have overlooked this. She would have realized that's what the angel's saying. In Semitic thought, a son was a carbon copy of his father, and the phrase son of was often used to refer to one who possessed his father's qualities. He was unlike anyone else, anyone else. Ever known, anyone ever born in this world, the, the, the actual living Son of God, which is why, of course, the incarnation was necessary, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but he was different than anyone else. Therefore, he's worthy of our trust. Over the years, I've had opportunities to meet or stand near or shake the hands of or talk to some famous people, as I'm sure all of us have on some occasion. You've run into somebody that was kind of famous or important or whatever. In my case... Um, I've been in, within feet of a couple of different presidents, and one of them I shook his hand and spoke with him. I've been within uh, four feet or four to six feet of a pope, John Paul II. You say, how did you get so close to the pope? Well, it's not exactly the way it sounds. He was in Chicago, and I was a student in Chicago. We were standing along the sidewalk. We were told that the pope and the caravan was coming right down the South Street where the school was. So we stood out there, and I couldn't believe it. I thought, well, it would be interesting. And, and he pulled right, I looked right in, in the eye. I thought, he's right there. It's the Pope. And some stars I've seen before, you know, Sir Ian McKellen and Sir, Sir Patrick Stewart, you know, star 
Trek fame. I just had to meet him and Adina Menzel, the singer and actress. And some of these I took pictures of. I put them on Facebook at the time. I thought these are like the famous people.、Um, when you're in the presence of someone like that, someone you've on, seen on TV, someone that you've watched in movies or whatever else, it creates a certain awe. It's like I can't believe I'm standing in the presence of this person. It just feels so, like they're so important, so great, and so significant, or whatever. And the fact that they even bow down to—I don't mean bow down—but they'd come and associate with commoners like me is impressive. But I wouldn't put my trust really in any of these, in a sense. Jesus was in a different category entirely—the Son of God, God the Son. And he's worthy of our complete trust and faith because of his identity. A second thing was true about him, though, that sets him apart and makes him worthy of our trust, and that's his incarnation. God became man. Now, this is an essential part of the story, as we're going to see in a minute, because if he did not become man, if he did not take on flesh and blood, we'll see in a little bit. He couldn't save us from anything.、And、this was an essential part of the story. This incarnation. Now let's read Luke one thirty four and thirty five again, and it focuses on this incarnation. Mary asked the angel, "How can this be, since I've not been intimate with a man?" By the way, Mary was not doubting the angel here. She's literally asking the question, "How are you going to do that? How am I going to get pregnant if I haven't been with a man?" The angel replied to her, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God." So this incarnation event is going to happen, so that the child born will be called the Son of God, and and it's because the Holy Spirit was going to come upon her, or the passage says the Most High God would overshadow her. Now, obviously, she did not become pregnant by the normal means, but you wonder what does it mean for the Holy Spirit or the Holy God to overshadow her? Well, this word is used other places in the Bible. A scholar by the name of I. H. Marshall explains it's used of God's presence resting on the tabernacle in the cloud in Exodus forty thirty-five. Let me just stop for a moment. But in the Old Testament, God gave Moses a design to build this. Tent-like structure that was called a tabernacle, and the holy of holies would be in part of that, and it'd be covered, and they'd do sacrifices and everything else. So Moses built this thing in the wilderness, in the desert, before the final temple would be built. And as soon as Moses was done, the text indicates the whole or God the Father came upon it. He overshadowed. He came down like in a cloud upon the tabernacle. So this、uh, commentator says it's used of God's presence resting on the tabernacle in the cloud, and it's used metaphorically of protecting His people in Psalm 91 and verse four. It says God will overshadow you, and so these are the two main ways it was used. God's powerful presence would rest on Mary so that she will bear a, son, a child who will be the Son of God. Now the reason this matters so much. Is because we, if we're going to have salvation or deliverance from sin, the the what we need is someone to mediate between sinful people and a holy God. And Jesus is the only one that's qualified because He was God and man. Do you understand what I'm saying? God is holy and perfect and just. We are not. And there's a chasm between sinful people and a holy God. We can't get holy enough 
because we're sinners and God is so holy. But Jesus bridged the gap by taking on flesh and blood. He was the only one that was both God and man. And so Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, there's one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus himself human, who gave himself a ransom for us. And so you can see that he was the one, we put our trust in him because he is the one, the only one who bridged the gap between a holy God and sinful people. He alone wore both hats. He was God and he was man, and therefore he could stand in the gap for us. And so his identity, we believe he's worthy of our trust because he was the son of God and God the son, his incarnation, he became a man. The third reason is his itinerary. He came to accomplish our salvation. Boomers like to use alliteration and things like that. So his identity, his incarnation, his itinerary, just had to find an I letter word. But you know what an itinerary is? Wordnick defines it this way. It's a route or proposed route of a journey. So Jesus came to this earth on a particular journey, and there were certain things that he had to accomplish for him to be worthy as an object of our trust. Certain things had to happen for him to be someone in, in whom we could find life, eternal life and salvation. And the itinerary went basically like this. First of all, he took on flesh and blood. He was born into this world. The one who was our creator became a created one. So that was part one, come into this world in this unique way, which again is why it had to be the way it was, a virgin. The father had to be God. The mother was Mary. Second, he lived a sinless life. This was essential, that Jesus be tempted in every way like you and I are, yet without sin. He had to go the distance. He had to succeed where Adam and Eve failed. And so he was tempted in all these ways. And you read about it in the gospel, some of it, the temptation he faced. If Jesus had sinned even once, he would have been disqualified from being our savior. He would have been disqualified. He would have needed a savior himself. But he succeeded in living a sinless life. Third part of this itinerary is he came to initiate the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And much of his teaching revolved around that. It says Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. What I love about this is that this is God's invitation to you and to me and the people in Jesus' day to become part of God's thing, to become part of his kingdom, become part of his family. Jesus came so that we could be adopted into the family of God so that we could be children of God. Not in the same sense as Jesus, but be part of his family, adopted into the family of God. And so Jesus preached this message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The fourth thing that needed to happen is he had to allow himself to be arrested, tried, and crucified, which was not an easy thing. In fact, none of these elements would have been easy. Nobody took Jesus' life from him. He, he offered it up willingly. He, he offered himself as a sacrifice for us. This is an essential part of the story. And it's the main reason he came into this world, as we'll see in, our, in the last point here in a moment. The fifth part of it, after dying, was that he had to overcome sin and its consequent death, consequence death by rising from the dead. He had to rise again. Now, you realize what, what happened here with Jesus and the cross and all that. The wages or penalty of sin is death. It's the reason everybody dies. The reason I know you all are sinners and I'm a sinner is that we're all going to die. This, the wages of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve that in the garden. The day you eat, you'll die. 
So death is the consequence for sin. We forfeit life because of sin. Well, Jesus came in this world for that specific reason to take the penalty for us. He took upon himself the sin of the world, and so he died. By taking on the sin of the world, he was now capable of dying. Of course, taking on flesh and blood allowed him to die as well. But the key here is that he rose again. He, he didn't stay in the tomb. He faced death and sin squarely. He took the full impact of sin on his life. And the consequence of sin, death, he faced it squarely and he won. He overcame it, breaking the chains of death for you and for me. That's why he can offer to us eternal life. The last part of this itinerary is that he ascended into heaven to be with his heavenly father. That was his itinerary. Now, you say, where do you get that from the Christmas story? Well, there's one word in the story of, of Gabriel and Mary that, that says it all. And it's the word Jesus. It's the name Jesus. So in Luke 1.31, Gabriel said, now listen, you'll conceive and give birth to a son. You will call his name Jesus. You say, well, what does that have to do with everything? Well, that's, that's the heartbeat of who he was and what he came to do. His name. I almost titled this thing, his name says it all. Now, you don't get it from the Luke reading, but if you go to Matthew, you come to the story where an angel appeared to Joseph, who was engaged to Mary. Now, you, you remember, and many of you know this, that in biblical times, if you were going to get married, you got engaged first, but you actually signed a legal agreement, and you were considered married the day that you proposed, in a sense. You signed the contract, you're considered to be married. You were not involved with one another physically, though, for a period of time. It's almost like a testing period, but you were still considered married. And so these two were separated. They were engaged and considered legally married, but they weren't living in the same place. Suddenly, Joseph hears the story that Mary's got a child, and he knows he wasn't the father. So the text indicates he decided to divorce her, but he was going to do it in a respectful way. He said, I don't want to bring unnecessary shame upon you, but I'm going to divorce, I have to divorce you. It's not my child. An angel was sent to Joseph to clear this up. The angel told him that child is, is conceived of the Holy Spirit. But then in Matthew 121, this is what the angel said to Joseph. She'll give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because, here's why, he will save his people from their sins. My study Bible notes, <clears throat> Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves or Yahweh saves. In a word, this was his primary mission. It's what he came to do to save us from our sin. And taking on flesh and blood again was the thing that made it possible for him to die. Otherwise, how does God die? But when Jesus took on flesh and blood, he was able when he became a person, he was able then to die for people, for humanity. He made it possible for us. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be like his brothers, like us, in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Two phrases here are significant. One is he became a merciful and faithful high priest. What's the role of a priest? It's to help bring people to God. That was Jesus' main role, to help bring people to God. 
calls him a high priest. But second, it says he came to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's one of those big theological words. It's defined in my study Bible. In this way, it's the removal of divine wrath. Jesus' death is the means that turns God's wrath from the sinner. I don't think we like to think of a God of wrath, although when I was at Bible college, I learned that the wrath of God is not like a holy temper tantrum. What the wrath of God describes in the Bible is when God in his absolute holiness confronts evil or sin. It's a visceral response almost to it, of the holiness of God against the sin of the world. Bottom line is, in Ephesians 2, you can read it for yourself, first couple verses, we were objects of God's wrath because of sin. But Jesus became the propitiation for us. He became the one who took upon himself the wrath of God for you and for me. And therefore, he's worthy of our trust. He's the only one we should turn to. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But let me make one final point. In addition to his identity, the incarnation, his itinerary, finally, his inheritance, he will reign forever. Jesus was inheriting the throne of King David. A thousand years earlier, God had made a promise to King David that one of his descendants would one day rule forever and ever. And Gabriel told Mary, this, the child within you is that one. Look at verses 32 and 33 again. He'll be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. There's no one ever has or ever will rule like Jesus. He's going to rule forever and ever and ever. Now, the reason that he becomes, therefore, the object of our trust, besides that unique description of him, is that he wins. He wins in the end. I want to put my trust and confidence in the winner. I mean, if you're going to put your support behind a, two teams and one of them's a winner and one's a loser, I'm just saying that he's the winner. He's going to reign forever and ever. Now, what do we do with this? Well... I think we can put our trust in Christ when it comes to the past, the present, and the future. You know, in the past, he's able to cleanse us of all of our sins, everything we've done wrong, and forgive us. He died for us in the past so that we could have life in him. In the present, he came so that we might be connected with him and experience his life as we live out the Christian life. We rely upon him day by day. He's promised, I'll never leave you, I will never forsake you. And in the future, we look for that day when we'll reign with Christ, when we'll bow before him. We have the privilege, of course, of doing that now. By way of application, though, there are some of you here today that maybe, I'm going to encourage you to receive the greatest gift you could get at Christmas time, and that is the forgiveness of your sin, to become a child of God through faith in Christ. It takes place just in a moment of time where you realize your condition. I, I, I cannot save myself. I need a, a deliverer. And you, you put your trust in Christ because he, pay, he paid the price for your sin, but you've got to receive that forgiveness. You've got to receive that payment on your behalf. And so you call out, as Paul said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Reach out to Jesus. I need a savior. I put my trust, confidence in you. In the present again for us, if you know Christ already, we just need to live in reliance upon him. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Stay connected to me. Because the life of God flows through Christ we stay connected with him. And then finally, we look forward to this future day when the Bible indicates we're going to reign with Christ and, and we're going to bow before him. Every, everyone will bow before Christ and 
Every tongue will confess he's Lord, but we have the privilege of doing that now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. What a remarkable plan. And it's such a demonstration of your love, but we really want to give Jesus the trust that he's worth. No one is trustworthy like Jesus. And we ask you, Lord, that if any have not received him as their savior, they'd find him in that way. And help us, O Lord, to rely upon him because he is worthy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.